Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. First up this morning, with a new security and intelligence relationship forged between some of our closest allies, we asked the former Foreign Minister if New Zealand has been cast aside. Then, anyone over the age of 12 can now get a vaccine. But how much is misinformation impeding the vaccine rollout? I don't like to emphasise the misinformation and disinformation out there because I think the vast majority of New Zealanders understand that that getting vaccinated is the right thing. Nationals Christopher Luxon will be with us shortly, talking water reforms and the direction of his party. And hell hath no fury like the team of five million scorned. We ask an expert why people who should know better break the COVID rules. It is something that we'll see among the Kardashians and the Madonnas and so forth, but uh, we're tempted by the same sort of things ourselves. Australia, the United States and Britain have signed an historic security pact which will give our Tasman neighbours nuclear-powered submarines. And we'll see the countries share security information as they seek to reduce China's influence in the Pacific. New Zealand officials say we were never invited to join the pact and they only had short notice the pact was being signed before it was made public. So, what does it mean for the future of our region? The former Foreign Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters is with us now live from Whananaki in Northland. Tēnāk, welcome back to Q&A. Good morning. What do you make of the AUKUS pact? Well, the reality is that we live in a very changing world and there's been a serious uh, military build-up and north of us. Uh, there are uh, responses that are required and the ability to be able to respond is the most likely uh, reason why we don't end up in a war because one thing is for certain, if you do not have the preparedness to defend yourself as a country or as a region, then war is the most likely possibility. So you think Australia needs nuclear-powered submarines? Well, the reality is it's a far more efficient form of uh, maritime transport in a defence sense uh, than uh, conventional diesel uh, submarines. And that's why the contract with France six years ago, no, five years ago, uh, that contract with France was always very, very doubtful as to why it was being entered by the Turnbull, then Australian Prime Minister government at that time. So this makes far more sense. Why is deterrence so important? Well, you know, the condition on which God hath given liberty to man, as it was said hundreds of years ago, is eternal vigilance. And we can live for and look for and hope for a lovely uh, world of peace and calmness and fairness towards other people. But that's not the way the world is, sad to say, and still is not. And so uh, our need to defend liberty and freedom has never changed. People might like to think it's different, but the hard reality and the difficult world in which we live has never changed. Does China threaten our liberty and freedom? Well, the fact is that the Indo-Pacific region is the one and the project that we've all been working on. It's to ensure that we do not end up with a circumstance where some nation, as you are starting to see in the South China Seas and elsewhere, is making military moves highly contested by their neighbourhood and the region themselves. And there has got to be a preparedness to respond. It's about all of our security in the end. So should New Zealand have been part of the pact? 
Well, it's very disappointing to hear that we've been left out in terms of consultation. It's uh, something very, very essential for countries like New Zealand to be aware of. We're not living here in an island in the concept of international peace, as some would like. We have to be part and parcel of the long-term peaceful solution. And we've been a very lucky generation that since the Second World War had seen, has seen major world peace. But it comes with a cost of ensuring that you're always ready to defend freedom and you're prepared to defend the rule of law and proper procedures and proper practices internationally. You are very experienced in this space. Why do you think New Zealand was left out of the pact? Well, I think sometimes you can send the wrong signals by making certain statements, for example, which uh, showed at the time of the uh, government post the election in 2020 that they were and had announced, and as perceived by the media, they had announced a shift. A shift to what? We don't live in a world where you can just make choices and uh, have others, countries internationally, respect them. You have to have sufficient number of countries who value your and share your values as well. Now, if that happens, you've got a chance. But I'm very concerned that we were not advised and that we got a phone call post uh, the event from um, the Australian Prime Minister. Can you unpack that a little bit more for us? What, what, what statements do you think have perhaps caused a little bit of distance between New Zealand and its traditional allies? Well, the new foreign minister made a very critical statement, accepted by a number of people in academia as being the right way to go. But this is the consequence of those sorts of statements. It was that we were going to shift our priorities, so to speak, and the first thing we did was to announce a reconfiguration or reassessment of our defence spend. Now, you've got to pull your weight, sad to say, and our weight has not been great, but you've got to do far more than we had hitherto been doing until 2017. We corrected that, but uh, as we went beyond that, the government, post the 2020 election, announced a change. The change I uh, have uh, always been concerned about because it said that we were going to change to something, but as to what it is and where we're going to go, no one today knows. It's important to point out that the, the AUKUS Pact is quite different to the Five Eyes Security Pact. So even though Australia, the UK and the US will be working together on issues of security and certainly military issues, uh, New Zealand still will have access to the intelligence sharing and cybersecurity information that comes through Five Eyes. But are you concerned that this pact means New Zealand is essentially more isolated? Well, precisely. And when you say we are still going to be assured of the other utilities which are seriously required for a country of our level of security, then that's to be determined to the future. But anything that weakens our allies and our friendships with countries that think like us all the way through Indo-Pacific is not good for New Zealand. China has um, reacted to news of the pact with anger and shortly afterwards announced that it wants to join the CPTPP. Should New Zealand support China's efforts to join that, that trade partnership? Well, a part and parcel of that partnership, which uh, is only now four years old, includes recognising the sovereignty of other countries and their borders and their boundaries, which is surely possible.
part and parcel of it, if we're to have good economic order, then the answer is yes. If the answer is no, then the answer should be no as to their joining. But Mr Peters, you know, as we all do, that New Zealand has tried to tread a line whereby we separate our trade policy and our foreign policy and our relationship with China. Are we going to be able to continue to do that? Well, if you think you can separate trade policy from maritime, free maritime movements and transport movements, then you would be 120% wrong. You can't. You've got to have freedom of the ocean and respected transport ways and... Uh, passageways for the movement of, and the rightful movement of trade. And if one country seeks to uh, dominate, then there is going to be trouble. That's inevitable. Let's talk about COVID-19. And I want to start with the big picture. It's coming up to a year since you were in Parliament. What do you make of the ongoing COVID-19 response? Well, parts of it have been brilliant and parts of it have been uh, a serious worry. Uh, you know, we began way back at the very beginning knowing in our first cabinet meetings in 2020 that old people, Māori and Pacifica were seriously the most vulnerable and that we were going to do something about them as a priority. And I don't know how it was, but it, when we got into 2021 and the vaccine rollout, it showed demonstrably that we were behind the eight ball, so to speak, and we'd lost so much time and at this point, in, uh, we have got all these buses being used and things like that and all these utilities being used when they were available five months ago. And when you look at the vaccine rollout, we went from being number one in the world to, at one point, 122 in the rollout, even though the rollout against the program was entirely different. So the program announced months ago, months ago was not followed. However, you know, we're all praying and hoping that a crash course right now and getting things right, right here, right now, can turn that around. Because if it doesn't, then the variant we've got now will be here uh, for some time. And worse still, we'll go through economic dislocation of the kind which is besetting Auckland and the billions and billions of dollars of costs that go with that. So we're going to have to say, look, we didn't get it all right. We didn't test properly. We didn't trace properly. And we didn't vaccine with the speed we should have. And we haven't got the medical facilities and the trained nurses in their hundreds ready for the kind of crisis we might face. We can, we can get on top of this and we can handle it. But if your plan is to go for an, a, a totally elimination strategy, then that's not going to succeed. We've got to get to 85, 90% vaccinations. We should be there now. And now, and when that happens, of course, we'd be able to handle the problem. But other things need to have been done much more wisely. So it's been brilliant in many areas. The Prime Minister has been great in formulating the concern, but the backup, the hard work on the ground and all the details seems to have shown some serious lapses. In your opinion, how should our strategy change in the coming months? Hopefully if we do get to 85 or 90% vaccination rates. Well, in the following uh, months, first of all, we should ensure that we get to 85-90% ASAP and use all the people out there that can help. For example, why were people walking out in April this year saying you're not listening? Let's put that aside and start listening now and get to the maximum number uh, and use everybody that you possibly can. And bear this in mind that uh, when we do that, 
we've got a chance of getting our economy back to normalcy. If we don't, I fear that we're going to be in these levels of lockdown at enormous cost when the rest of the world is starting to open up because they're facing high vaccination can mean normal life. To be clear, do you think we should open the borders once we reach that vaccination rate? We're going to have to. We cannot be sitting here in the hermit kingdom, so to speak, thinking we can trade with the rest of the world and have business with the rest of the world when they are opening up their borders and we're not. What we've got to do is open them up with the greatest level of security and testing and validation before we, that happens. But both can be done because we can't go on at $140 billion rising in an economy like ours without there's enormous stress, enormous poverty and a whole lot of other people, not with COVID, but dying of uh, conditions for which they're not getting treatment because their hospitals can't take them on at this point in time. You've written to the Auditor-General asking for them to look into the contracting and procurement process for a $60 million contract for saliva testing. The contract was awarded to the Asia-Pacific Healthcare Group, which is part-owned by the New Zealand Superfund. What are your concerns? Well, my concerns were that the procurement process and procedures and the transparency and the fairness and the value for the money for the taxpayer all of those tests had failed on this procurement program where APHG was concerned. They were not validated, they were not accredited, and a huge delay happened between the Roche-Simpson report in September of 2020 saying saliva testing is critical, it needs to be rolled out right now, and here we are a whole year later and they've still not been validated and accredited internationally in the way that the other contender, RACO, has been. And RACO, as you know, has been used by Air New Zealand, by Amazon, by Main Freight, by a whole lot of leading business minds who know that this is a totally acceptable process and at far less cost. So what happened here behind closed doors is what I'm asking the Auditor General. I note that your tweet about this issue was your first tweet, your first public tweet since October of last year. Why have you raised this issue? Why, why does this, of all things, um, cause you to tweet? Well, I was there in Cabinet when uh, the government's inquiry, I wrote and Simpson came out, and I observed out of Parliament that it's not been actioned. And meanwhile, people have had the most invasive nasal testing, uh, and hours and hours and the whole 24 hours waiting for assessment after the nasal testing, when a better option was always available. And when you look at all the reasons why it was not being used, you come up with the conclusion that something dramatically went wrong inside the decision-making circles. And I want to know who these influences were that took their eye off the health of New Zealanders and our economy for private advantage. Finally, Mr Peters, looks gorgeous there at, in Fananaki. H have you managed to get both of your jabs? <laughs> you won't believe how long it took to get both, both of them, even though, as you know, I'm slightly in the over-65-year-old bracket.
but it took me only two months. <laughs> and I only got it by deciding to go in on a uh, Labor Weekend Monday when I was told, look, they're going to be really slack in the afternoon, give it a try there. That's how I got started. I was sent through a 45-minute rig and roll like most older people, so to speak. And uh, I have to tell you that, um, yes, I have got them, but not in the way that it was advertised in full pages and tens of millions of dollars of propaganda about the ease of the rollout. Yeah. Well, but you got the I'm, shot in the arm. Delightful you've asked. <laughs> I'm, de I'm delightful you've asked because your care for my health is one of my major priorities. <laughs> well, you're looking very healthy and well. Thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. And you too. There bye is bye. the former Deputy Prime Minister and former Foreign Minister Winston Peters. After the break on Q&A, as the Three Waters consultation comes down to the line and as his party languishes in the polls, National's Christopher Luxon will be with us live. Hōki mai we know mai ki te hōtaka o ngā pātai me ngā whakautu. Welcome back to Q&A. The National Party says the government should scrap its massive three waters reforms and find an alternative solution to the infrastructure deficit. Christopher Luxon is National's local government spokesperson and he is with us this morning. Tēnā koe, why do you think the government should scrap its three waters plan? Well, good morning, Jack. Great to be with you. Uh, listen, there's three really simple reasons why this, the plans need to be scrapped. Uh, the first is that there are proposed scale benefits that, frankly, are really unrealistic and hard to understand. When you think about the nature of water assets, they fundamentally are individual, local, very geographically bounded. And when you throw things like wastewater treatment plants into an entity, you've got one in Gisborne and another one in Blenheim, it's very hard to network and get synergies or savings off that. I think the second reason is that, you know, fundamentally there are many councils, despite what the government advertising campaign has been saying, that are managing their water assets incredibly well. And there are others that aren't doing a good job of that. And so if you're in places like Pleasant Point, just out of Timaru, uh, you're going to be paying your water fees and charges into a big entity in the Lower South Island, and that money's going to be going straight to East Dunedin. If you're in Nelson, who's got good water asset, uh, you're going to be putting your fees and charges going to be to be upgrading really the water assets in Wellington. And so cross-subsidisation becomes a real issue. But I think the third thing is that it's fundamentally uh, the creation of these mega, four mega sort of bureaucratic entities that are actually stripping power away from local communities and stripping those assets. And just to give you a feel for it, you know, I think those assets are essentially being laundered because you might have, most of these entities have 20 to 22 district councils in them. They get to choose six members that actually form a representative panel. The same thing's happening with EWI within that, with that, within that entity. They then choose an independent board panel who then select mm. a board, who then select the management team. And the consequence of that is that the council fundamentally doesn't end up with an actual shareholding or a financial interest or a formal ownership stake and certainly has no direct influence and I think the problem with that is that these are assets that fundamentally ratepayers have paid through their rates over many many decades uh, and they're not being fairly compensated for them and so you know I just think about Christchurch there's seven billion dollars worth of water assets and the proposal from the government is that they'll pay them 122 million dollars and maybe they'll take on their billion dollars worth of debt but that doesn't equal seven billion dollars worth of assets so you know what I think is that the minister needs to stop she needs to halt the reform she needs to listen very closely to the communities and then think about alternative models that can happen uh, in order to actually solve the problems that we have. What might an alternative model actually look like then? Because uh, uh, you know, the current system might be serving residents in some parts of the country well, but there are plenty of councils where the water infrastructure is very poor. 
Yeah, look, I mean, I mean, our view, Jack, is that, you know, there's sort of three things there. I mean, the first thing is that we do agree that, that we do have some challenges with managing water across the country, but it's not the same problem everywhere, and that there are some councils, and many councils, in fact, that have done a great job. Mm. There are others that have done a very poor job, and we need very tailored sort of solutions to upgrade that infrastructure. And if you think about where this all kicked off in Havelock North, and you think about Hastings and all those surrounding areas, including Havelock North, that whole problem was fixed for about $80 million. The second big issue is that, and I think it's quite exciting and a very positive move forward, and we're supportive of this with the government, is the creation of a national water regulator called Tamaura Arawai. And what that's unique about is it sets the standard for drinking waters and then will enforce it with councils. And up until now, that's been the responsibility of the Ministry of Health, and they've actually done a very, very poor job doing that. So then the question becomes, if a council falls short of the standards being set by the regulator, what do they do? And I think there's a whole range of scenarios that's quite possible in that. And that starts with fundamentally some councils are saying they would collaborate with their neighbour and they try and pull their water management resources. Others are actually saying they would create council controlled organisations. Mm. Others are actually saying they would contract and some already do it, uh, really good water uh, management uh, practices from other good councils that are doing it well. And I think there's a lot of alterna alternative models between central government and local government to make the big investment in the infrastructure deficit we have through co-funding mechanisms. And there's ideas that you see in Australia or the UK around what mm. we call city deals or regional deals. There's ideas that sit around you know, how we even fund transport today, how we could use the National Infrastructure Bank. So I think there's a lot of alternatives and I think that's what the Minister has to do is halt the reforms that sit here today and go back to the drawing board on that. I think the big issue though, Jack, is that we're actually having the wrong conversation at the wrong time um, because the bigger issue fundamentally is what does the future relationship between central and local government look like mm. going forward and the reality is for the 2030s and beyond we need a new way of thinking about that because on the one hand you've got sort of mindlessly centralise everything we know best one size fits all run everything from Wellington this government's going down that path big time on a number of issues RMA tertiary education three waters on the other hand you can be hopelessly local and the problem with that is that our local governments need to be much more performance driven, professional and prioritised much better and we actually need a hybrid model that says yeah. central and local government are united on some common goals and objectives and they're actually going to work together to get those done and that's what I hope the future of local government review actually uh, those sort of questions are actually uh, asking. Yeah, I think review. most people agree there needs to be some sort of some sort of balance doesn't there and you know it's important to, to remember the reason we're having this conversation in the first place is because of what was a disastrous situation in Havelock North. But do local governments Absolutely. have sufficient competencies? Are they sufficiently competent? Do they have the expertise to actually manage these resources? Well, I think that's why many of, many of them do, and they are really fit for purpose. Many, but and not I've all. travelled around the country and I've met... But not, not all, and that's right. And those are the ones that we really need to actually hold to account and actually enforce the standard with. And that's why the regulator plays that important role. And then we need to work out how we close that gap and quickly get them into spec, uh, as was done in, in Hastings and Havelock North. So I think you know, there, is, there is some capability and it's some very good capability, uh, but essentially I think the regulator setting standards mm. and saying this is what it is across all of New Zealand is a good thing. What role should Māori play in managing and protecting those water assets? Well, listen, I mean, Māori, you know, our view very strongly is no one owns water. Māori have very strong interests in water, uh, and there's no doubt about that. But I think these reforms actually are just bigger than the iwi conversation because these are assets that have been owned and paid for by ratepayers over many decades, uh, and there is a very convoluted structure. And there's a lot of fault and, and, and big technical problems with, these, with this proposal, and I think those are the things that we really want to focus on. So, so to be clear, you think if, if we are to reform this space that Māori should be given 
given no additional um, management or protection rights over those resources as they stand at the moment? I think there's a really big question about making sure that these assets stay in local council control and local council ownership, and that's really the big issue here. That's the bigger point, um, because these assets have been paid mm. for by citizens over many, many years and decades, and they need to be stay in local control and local ownership. Those 67 local councils and entities are giving feedback to the government at the moment. If they're not on board, do you think the government will legislate? Yeah, I think that's a big risk here, Jack, is that you know, at the moment all councils have in good faith entered this process on the basis that they can opt out at any point in time. But the Minister, we've asked the questions many, many times of her, and she has refused to rule out what she calls, in, calls the all-in legislated option. And most worryingly, there's a memorandum of understanding between local government and mm. the Minister uh, that actually says that they can't actually oppose, uh, actively oppose those legislations if, if, if it's formally legislated. I think that would be a big shame if it's mandated and it's forced on council and those assets are taken away. I think the better answer is actually say, let's have a halt, let's go away and rethink it, mm. let's listen really carefully to those local communities and then let's dream up some alternative options and alternative models. There's only been one model proposed and mm. only one thing discussed here, which is these four mega water entities, well, and yet you know, that's a solution in search of a problem versus starting with good problem definition and working out the models that come after that. It's clear from our conversations with local councils that... that um, I think it's safe to say that you're not going to get all 67 councils on board with these proposed changes at the moment. So if they're not all on board, do you think the Minister will choose to legislate? Um, I think it would be a very brave call. I think there would be a really big uproar because I think the mm. vast majority of New Zealanders are, are against these reforms. By my calculation, there are 60 out of the 67 councils that are opposed in some form or another, uh, and I think that would be a very brave thing. I don't think it's the right thing to do going forward. Let me ask about your party. There were two bad polls for National this week, one in particular uh, from Curia, which is of course the National Party's traditional uh, polling company, showing the party at just 21% party support. Why is National doing so poorly? Well, look, I mean, the bottom line is we had an absolutely shocking result at the last election uh, and we've got to call it for what it is. We've got a lot of work to do to rebuild trust and relevancy back with the New Zealand people. Uh, I'm new to politics. I've been there 10 months. I think one of the big things any organisation or any person has to do fundamentally is, is confront the, the brutal reality that you face. Uh, and that's what you've got to do first and foremost before you can work out a plan to get to a better place. And that's kind of where we are uh, in the cycle. And so for us, you know, as, as someone looking at it from outside, and I think, you know, We've all talked about it. There's sort of three things that we've got to do. The first and foremost is that we have to play as a team in Parliament uh, and actually work together, uh, and that's starting to happen, but there's more for work for us to do on that. The second thing is we've got to continue to evolve the National Party. We've got to keep the good things about it, but we've also have the, got to have the courage to change and evolve the things that need to do so. And I think the third thing, and the most important thing, is actually we've got to make sure our messages have relevance to people in this day and age. And the bottom line I'd say to you is, look, you know, there's nothing wrong with our centre-right politics or principles or beliefs. There's many governments, very successful centre-right governments all around the world. We have to find a way to connect those values that come from there to the daily lives of people across New Zealand. And so, you know, I get it, there's a big pile on uh, on the National Party, but what I'd say to you is, you know, this is the normal course in the sense of, you know, watch what happened with Tony Blair and the Labour Party in the UK or Cameron and the Conservative Party when they were out of power and how they had to reinvent their party. Stephen Harper did the same thing in Canada. We even did the same thing after you know, a very poor result in 2002. 
into as well. So it's a natural cycle and order. The key thing is, you know, we need to get onto the issues, and that's why I'm talking to you today about Three Waters. Mm. But that's why my colleagues, you know, look at the work Matt Ducey's been doing on mental health. If you want to mm. go look at some speeches in Parliament, look at his. Look at Nicola Willis on housing, Erica Stanford on well, the immigration. The problem is that so you know, much of the attention is being taken by other things, though, isn't it? And, and in particular, comments from, from your leader. What responsibility does Judith Collins have for that 21% result? Well, look, well, look. I think Judith's, you know, doing, you know, she's she's got a really tough job, and you know better than anybody that being the leader of the opposition is always tough at the best of times. We've only got to look at the last 15 years of opposition leaders to see how hard it actually is. It's a difficult balance to strike, and what I can tell you is that she's stabilising us, and she is actually getting it stable, and she's getting us focused on where we are. But I want to say to you, you know, it's not actually about just the leader. It is actually about mm. all of us in that 33 in that caucus, and all of the National Party members, who actually as as leaders in their own personal capacity have to lead themselves and engage and think and reinvent uh, you know, where this National Party wants to go going forward. And I think we have a really exciting future going forward. Mm. We just have to solve problems for people, care deeply about people, and most importantly, what the country wants us to do is get things done. And that's not what's happening with this government. So we've got a lot of thinking and a lot of work to do on our side. I also think fundamentally that a lot of New Zealanders are seeing through this government, they're great on communication and spin, but they are not getting things done or executing things well. They are centralising and wanting to control a lot of stuff. There's a lot of wasteful spending, poor prioritisation. You can look at $800 million cycle bridges, you can look at mental health, falling education centres, all those sorts of things. And they want us to get things done, and that's what we've got to focus on. You see, it's interesting that you are staying on message here, and, and this is one of the criticisms of Judith Collins in the last couple of weeks, we've seen everywhere, that that on occasion, in high-profile situations, she has gone a whole long way off message to the detriment of the party. You saw those preferred Prime Minister numbers this week. Why do you think Judith Collins is so unpopular with voters? Oh, look, I think, you know, she's just she's doing a tough job at a tough time, as I said before. You know, we've got a lot of work to do mm. to rebuild trust, to reinvent the party. Mm. We have to go out and listen. You know, every business I've ever run... It, so is she not listening at the moment? lost the voice of a consumer. We've got, we've got it all... Well, it's not just Judith's responsibility, it's all of our responsibility but, but to go out so there unpopular? and listen, engage and think about this. She, she, she is a very clear person. She knows what she, what she's about, and I can tell you, she's got the best of intentions and great intentions, mm. and she gets things done, and she's got a great track record of doing that. So, uh, I don't think it's about Judith. I think it's about the proposition and about where the National Party goes from here, and us doing the thinking about that. That is natural mm. after having had a very successful period in government and actually finding our way through it. As I said, many other people have done that around the world, and many other political parties have done that, and that's the work that we're going to get on with. I know you've only been in Parliament for ten months, but your name pops up on multiple, has popped up on multiple occasions on the preferred prime minister stakes. Why shouldn't you be the national leader? Oh, look, I mean, I've got a lot to learn, Jack. I mean, there's a big change here coming from a business background into a political background, and I'm very, very focused on mm. the four things that I think if you're going to be any good at this, you've got to learn. I've got to be able to master and understand my electorate, the party. Uh, Parliament's an odd beast at the best of time. There's a lot of protocols there that I've got to learn. And most importantly, I've got to master my portfolios and the policy areas and actually come up with thinking and ideas around that. So I'm just one of those people who's built my career. I'm focusing on the job that I've got now, playing the role that I'm asked to mm. in the team, and that's what I'm going to do. But there's a lot of learning to do. You know, yeah. and that's really why I think you know, I've got to focus on that for now. And once you've mastered those four things, are you interested at the right time in being the national leader? 
nah, look, I'm just, I've, I've built my whole career, frankly, on just doing the job that I'm asked to do right here, right now, and that's what I'm going to continue to do. And as I say to you, a lot to learn and a lot for me to master. Tēnā That is Christopher Luxon, the National Party's local government spokesperson. Thanks for being with us on Q&A. Appreciate it, Jack. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Coming up, the team of five million unites against a common enemy. And no, we're not talking about the virus. Kia ora te hoki mai anō. Who and what do you trust? This week alone, our health watchdog dispelled fears around the safety of the vaccine. Ashley Bloomfield shot down supposed cures. And the chief coroner made the unusual step of dispelling speculation that a young Auckland woman's death was caused by the vaccine. The issue of misinformation or disinformation has been a thorn in the side of the COVID-19 response from the get-go. Here's Connor Sterling. We are still up against a battle where people are just being told absolute rubbish. And it's incredibly hard. Since the pandemic began, misinformation about viruses and vaccines has spread rapidly. Health officials took the battle to rumour this week. From the livestock product touted as a cure... Ivermectin is not a proven yes. safe treatment for COVID-19. ..to the body's own defences being enough. There have also been claims on social media that people's natural immunity or vitamin C are sufficient to fight COVID-19. This is not the case. Misinformation about vaccines is nothing new for public health experts. We had a real problem in the early 1990s when somebody had decided publicly that the MMR vaccine could be related to autism. That created a myth overnight that we have not been able to remove. But social media has changed how misinformation spreads. Don't just go into an echo chamber of social media or a small amount of people who are sure they know better than the accumulation of international data. With Māori vaccination rates disproportionately low, it's that echo chamber that Tina Nata has been fighting on the East Coast. Our whānau make awesome decisions when we know the facts. Nata and others say the trust so deeply required needs to go both ways. So you can't just expect people to automatically trust you when you're, you're one, not demonstrating that you're trustworthy through your decision-making, and two, not demonstrating any level of trust within those communities yourself. But what she and others are doing on Marae and in the community is proof that education makes a difference. We would be well past 90% vaccinated for our adult population in Matakao now. While the vaxi taxi makes its way to some Auckland communities, the message this week and every week, seek your information from a trustworthy source. Connor Sterling with that report. So what role will disinformation play in the ongoing vaccine rollout? Kate Hanna is the project lead for the disinformation project at Te Pūnaha Matatini. Tēnā koe, thank you for being with us. What do you do? Oh, kia ora, Jack. Good morning. Um, so what we've been doing since the beginning of the pandemic is trying to understand um, how information has flowed through communities and to people who need to understand what's going on. And what uh, the World Health Organization have described we're experiencing as is an infodemic. 
So what we are experiencing is an overwhelming amount of information about the virus because it's new and therefore about the vaccine as well. And we started uh, back in February, March last year at the same time the pandemic was emerging as, as a key international crisis. We knew that um, there would always be a, a spread on social media and outside social media of um, misleading information about the virus and we needed to understand how what kind of impact that would have in Aotearoa. And what sort of impact has it had? Well it's been really interesting and and um, slightly disturbing I guess is, is two things. So we very quickly noticed that um, there were sort of three key themes of the types of disinformation right from the beginning of, of the crisis. Uh, some of those were around health and well-being claims. So those are the kinds of claims that you refer referenced in the story yeah. about, you know, that um, perhaps the body's natural immunity or um, vitamin C, etc., are kind of ways of preventing oneself getting COVID-19. Then there were claims um, around the role of science and experts in perhaps developing or um, promulgating the virus and then there were claims around the role of states and governments and you will have seen over the last 18 months that a lot of those claims have extended towards um, aspects of kind of a democratic society including the news media so there are these sort of stories around um, who is benefiting from the virus and its impacts and what we've really noticed is that those narratives have changed significantly over time. So in the early days, most of the claims were around those health and well-being aspects. And now we're very much around um, conspiratorial thinking about the role of the state, the role of the news media, the role of people like myself working in academia, and also the role of, of healthcare professionals, mm. so um, nurses and doctors and vaccinators. And some of the language and, and tone of, of the disinformation that's been spread is quite um, strongly worded, um, almost violent in some cases. And so, you know, that's a real shift from rumours and conjecture in March last year through to where we are now um, in September 2021. Who's susceptible to disinformation? Everybody is susceptible to disinformation. And in fact, a lot of the research internationally shows that those who believe themselves or consider themselves to be of you know good education and high intellect and and, and you know well read and, and a, you know feel that they have good critical thinking skills are actually some of the most susceptible because once they've drawn a conclusion mm. themselves they're much less likely to be persuaded by somebody else so it's not about education it's not about um, ignorance it's actually about locking into a story that makes sense to you based on your lived experiences and your worldviews. And how does the impact of disinformation compare between New Zealand and other countries? So there's a few interesting features of the disinformation landscape in New Zealand. Um, one of the things that I think is both a little bit terrifying, but also an opportunity for us to um, really understand the impact it's having, is that New Zealanders appear to like their disinformation packaged into New Zealand formats. So we don't like disinformation that comes straight from say the famous disinformation dozen in the United States. Um, we like it to be told in our own vernacular, to have associations mm. and links to our own lived experiences here in Aotearoa. And so what that means is that um, some things just don't sit well when they are just shared and reshared. We prefer to have our own people telling us these stories. And that is both interesting, but it's also an opportunity because um, I think 
we all know that in Aotearoa we have like one half a degree of separation from each other and so it means that when we have these people who are spreading and supporting misinformation or disinformation we have a way of accessing their reliability and understanding who they are and whether we should be listening to them in a way that when there's sort of big international producers of disinformation sharing stuff um, we don't have. Well this is a big and heavy philosophical question but how does anyone know what is and isn't true? Gosh, that really is quite a big question for a Sunday morning, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> and you're asking a cultural historian <laughs> to explain it to you too. Um, we know we, we, we should evaluate things. We should mm. look at the expertise. We should also ask questions about power. And I think that's really interesting um, for me as a cultural historian, but it's also interesting for everybody because what we see in Aotearoa at the moment is that disinformation is is information that is incorrect that has been created and shared and then mm. misinformation is being shared by people who who don't know whether that information is true or not and often people share misinformation out of a sense of concern and care for other people it's just that they aren't sure whether it's true or not and often it isn't and i think the thing to ask is who is telling the story how are they personally profiting or benefiting from it and why should you trust them? And I think um, in Connor's story, uh, he interviewed Tina, Tina Nata, my colleague and friend, and she's exactly right in that we have to um, make sure that the people who are telling the stories have trust for the communities mm. that they're speaking to and with. And that's something that you know we're increasingly seeing with the vaccine rollout. Um, the leadership from Iwi Māori, Hapu Māori, Māori organisations and Pacifica organisations is outstanding at building that trust we in the are right at, place. We are at this critical point in the pandemic response where we have what are likely to be the lowest barriers to vaccination. Anyone over the age of 12 can be vaccinated. It's free. We have drive-in vaccination centres. You don't have to make a booking anywhere. You barely have to queue. What role do you think disinformation is likely to play for people who haven't yet been vaccinated? Uh, I think it's going to play a very large role in the next few weeks and months, Jack. Mm. Um, the people who are creating content or resharing content which is designed to uh, make people more reluctant to get vaccinated are targeting the very communities that we need to get vaccinated. They're targeting young people, they're targeting mothers and fathers and parents who are making decisions about or for or with their mm. young people. Um, they're targeting uh, fears around fertility, pregnancy, breastfeeding, things that are very, very um, emotionally charged and personal and scary anyway. And they're very much targeting those different groups of people with um, messages of fear, distrust for um, the current response. And they're also targeting with um, the language of love bombing, which is sort of a, a feature of um, say cults and other groups. So, so the people who are scared are being given this language of community and love, and they're being told that um, journalists, academics, scientists, the government don't have their best interests at heart. And so that combination of fear and love um, pulls people into a really mm. 
uh, emotionally charged response instead of you know a thinking through and making decisions based on the information response and so we just have to keep combating it and understanding that people are being focused on those groups are being targeted this is such an interesting conversation thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us that is Kate Hanna who's the project lead for the disinformation project at Te Punaha Matatini after the break on Q&A, the curious psychology behind COVID-19 rule breakers and mob justice in the internet age. Social media went pōrangi, went crazy, went bananas this week over a very high-profile example of people breaking the COVID rules. Two people who probably should have known better. Here's Fina Owen with why this keeps happening. I made a, just a terrible, terrible, terrible mistake. I did not follow the advice I'm giving to others. I'm truly sorry for that. Fellow South Africans, I regret the incident and I'm deeply sorry for my actions. I, I made the judgment and I was wrong. Those of us who make these rules have got to stick by them and that's why I've got to resign. Why do some people making and enforcing the rules break them? It's not a surprise. This is Professor David Dunning Skyping in from Michigan, a top social psychologist who's known for the Dunning-Kruger effect and motivated reasoning, our tendency to rationalise our way to the decision we want. The problem is, is we often think that we're special. We think that we're unique. Our circumstances aren't replicated elsewhere. And so the rules don't necessarily apply to us as much as they apply to everybody else. Uh, that's true of everybody. The Prime Minister's coming under a bit of scrutiny tonight over his Father's Day trip to Sydney. We're all in the same boat, so he should be in the same boat as us. So have we seen a disproportionate number of people in positions of power flouting the rules? Among them, the epidemiologists whose advice helped shape Britain's lockdown strategy, accepting visits from his lover, or Scotland's chief medical officer who drove to her holiday home. I've seen a lot of the comments from members of the public on Twitter today. People calling me a hypocrite. Last year, our former Minister of Health, David Clark, drove out of town during lockdown to exercise. Although her actions didn't break the rules, scientist and New Zealander of the Year, Dr Susie Wiles, was criticised for a recent outing to a beach. At such a critical time, how do these events and even perceptions undermine public confidence? Someone tells you to do something. Uh, do you trust them? Period. Um, it's not whether you understand what they're saying. It's not whether um, uh, you can uh, come to your own conclusion. It's just simply, is this a person that I can trust? And it's very important to maintain that trust at the individual level, let's say to doctor to uh, patient, but also uh, policymaker to country. Could it be that those with public profiles who break the rules are just more visible? High-level lockdowns haven't stopped the likes of the Kardashians from jetting off on holidays. Madonna, Justin Bieber and a Belgian prince have all flouted the rules, and we label it self-entitlement. I think uh, we're all prone to a little self-entitlement, especially when it's hard. Um, it is something that we'll see among the Kardashians and the Madonnas and so forth, but uh, we're tempted by the same sort of things ourselves. And it's important to maintain discipline. Name suppression has lapsed for the couple who fled to Wanaka to escape Auckland's lockdown.
Last week, we learnt that Auckland horse breeder William Willis and his partner, lawyer Hannah Rawnsley, broke lockdown rules, drove to Hamilton and flew to a family home in Wanaka. Criticism was intense. Social media went nuts. COVID is something uh, that's a risk that we share all among us. And so uh, everybody has to act in a way that protects everybody else. So your actions um, alter my fate. Uh, and so, uh, naturally, people are going to become more emotional. In the past month, New Zealanders have reported 7,900 alleged lockdown breaches. A few days ago, three Auckland men were arrested at a Ruapehu ski resort. And while human nature is not a defence for breaking the rules, it's likely some will continue to flout them and pay the price. Fair to say, I never expected to see the Kardashians on Q&A. Fina Owen with that report. After the break, having called a snap election, Canada's Prime Minister is in a tight race with his centre-right opposition. Could this be the end of Justin Trudeau's reign? Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is often compared to Jacinda Ardern. Five weeks ago, Trudeau decided to take Canadians to the ballot box for a snap election. The election's on Tuesday, New Zealand time, and polls now show a tight race with the centre-right Conservatives. Marika Walsh is a political reporter at The Globe and Mail and joins us now live this morning. Kia ora, Marika. Thanks for being on Q&A. Every election at the moment is a COVID election. How is Justin Trudeau perceived by voters as having handled the pandemic? I think he's perceived as handling it pretty well. We had a very different approach than New Zealand did. New Zealand had a COVID zero approach really in terms of monitoring its borders and the people coming in. Canada did not have that. It had more of a scattershot approach federally when we're looking at the borders. And then each premier for each province set its own lockdown rules and the own rules for who could be out and about at what times and what sort of benchmarks we had to hit for case numbers to change. So. He certainly, uh, that is an issue right now, but it's not why he's in tough right now. He's in tough right now for calling an election so early. Why did he call the election so early? I think, you know, the cynical politician or strategist in me would say that he called it because the polls looked really good for him heading into the election. In July, he was almost 10 points ahead of his closest competitor. There was a halo effect from everybody or many people having their vaccines. People were enjoying summer. And then people were forced to contend with politics again, and they were not having it. And that lead completely shrunk. And now he's really in a fight for his life. It looks like he will still form government after the election results come in, but it's possible he loses seats, weakening his position in government. If, in a worst-case scenario, by Trudeau's perspective, he does lose power and the Conservatives find themselves in power, what would that mean for New Zealand? The Conservatives actually put a lot of focus on New Zealand and Australia and trying to form closer ties with those countries as well as the UK. They propose uh, a broader free trade pact that would also allow for easier travel, students crossing crossing the ocean to work in each other's countries as well as workers. So there is a lot of interest from the Conservatives if they do form government to form those closer ties. And it also goes to issues with the Five Eyes and this and this new defence pact that was signed this week with the UK, the US and Australia and Canada and New Zealand notably out of it.
Yeah, how was that pact received in Canada or in, in Canada's absence received? Very similar to the reporting that I saw in New Zealand this week, Mr. Trudeau, as Ms. Ardern was forced to explain and defend why they were left out of it. My colleagues at The Globe reported that Canada was actually completely caught off guard by this, that the ministers just a few hours before it was announced got the first clear heads up of what this meant. And it really feeds into this issue and this perspective that people have of Mr. Trudeau that he is not hard enough on China, particularly when we have Canadians who are arbitrarily detained there. If Trudeau wins the election, what will be his priorities in his next term? I think climate change, which is something that I know Ms. Ardern also focuses on, that will be a big focus, especially with the international meetings coming up. Certainly, though, we are actually in a surging fourth wave of the pandemic here in Canada. Some provinces' healthcare systems are already buckling. And so it's very possible that, you know, we've had this nice glow of a summer and we're back into it in a real way this fall. And so, again, like the last election two years ago, all of his agenda and priorities could be completely sidelined again. I, I know that polls everywhere over the last few years have only been marginally reliable at best. You say at the moment, if we are to trust the polls, it looks likely Trudeau will <laughs> scrape in. But generally, is his decision to call a snap election being perceived as a mistake? They were going into this election expecting to move their government from a minority where they have to ask for support from parties for each of the laws they want to pass to a majority. Mm. And so now we're in a position where they will just be happy to still be forming government when the results come in this week. We're hoping the results don't take as long as they did in the US, but we're already getting warnings about that. But certainly he is he took a big risk, he took a big gamble. And now the question is, will it pay off enough for the party to be happy for him to stay at the helm for the years ahead? Mm. A fascinating few days ahead. Thank you so much for your time. That is Marika Walsh. She is a political reporter for the Globe and Mail, live with us from Toronto in Canada. Kua That's Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching. And Namahikia mihi Thank you for your contributions. Wakahuia is up next. And then Marae with the wonderful Jenny Mae Clarkson. Thank you to the Q&A team. Aitera Wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.